Well, we're going to continue in our book of Revelation. We're, believe it or not, session 14. Can you imagine that? Didn't seem like we've been doing it that long, right? We started chapter 8 in our last session, and we will conclude chapter 8 and look at chapter 9. So we're still talking about trumpet judgments. And actually, that's the title of this next subdivision as well. And we just completed looking at the first four trumpet judgments. And I hope I impressed you with how horrendous and how they will just pretty much begin disrupting virtually everything in the culture. And I mentioned that they're organized together and that each one has the element of a third. So a third of the earth is destroyed in these areas. Third of the earth is of the vegetation of the earth, which is going to totally disrupt the food chain and all the uh, things that are dependent on it by the fire and the hail that falls from heaven. And then there's something like a mountain is thrown into the sea, maybe a tectonic event or a displacement of an, mountains and islands, destroying a third of the sea life. And again, just the disruption that's going to cause. And we talked about a star that falls from heaven, which is probably an asteroid, because the Greek word doesn't distinguish between asteroids, stars, planets, comets. It appears that that will destroy a third of the fresh water. So fresh water is, if you had water shut off from your house for any period of time, cities working on lines or something, Boy, it throws you in a in a panic, and that's just a short-term thing, and you're looking for water and that sort of thing. We can't imagine how disruptive that's going to be. And then we talked about the uh, darkening of a third of the celestial bodies where we get light. So we have an astrophysical judgment that's going to have its own devastation. So those are the first four, four trumpet judgments. This is in contrast I've already mentioned that uh, really the only bright spot is the great blessing that we saw in chapter 7. The massive revival, which is the greatest revival the world will ever see and has ever seen. We saw these four trumpet judgments, a unit. They're set together like the seal judgments. I mentioned that earlier. And another underlying thought here is, remember, the first few verses tell us that this is adding to the answers of the prayers of chapter 6, the martyrs of chapter 6. So sequentially, back to uh, the sequence, and and by the way, I gave kind of a little, what do you call it, introduction, I guess, to the chronology. How do you fit all these together? This is another little point here that kind of looks back. In other words, it's alluding to what had already taken place. It's just a hint, but it probably refers to that fifth seal judgment. So these events probably are after that. Just a little hint. It's not conclusive. But in exegesis, you put together enough of these little pieces of information, and if you have enough of them, then you can come to a solid conclusion on some things. So it probably alludes back to the answered prayer of chapter 6 that we read, where they're yearning for God to deal with evil once and for all. And we mentioned when God deals with evil, what he must do 
is he must separate evil from good, and that's a painful process. Separating evil from good means that God has to surgically cut and remove that that is evil. And that's what judgment is all about. So this is what the saints are praying for. And these are introduced with the concept of God is answering those prayers. And that moves us to chapter... Actually, there's a verse in verse 13 that we'll look at, and then we'll move into chapter 9. I forgot to mention when we were looking at that third trumpet judgment. This is an old article, by the way, 1992. Newsweek article, Doomsday Science, the whole article, several pages actually. The Science of Doom, space is filled with objects that threaten Earth. Researchers are scrambling to ensure that worlds don't collide. And what they mean by that is these asteroids that are out there, some of them are on a path to come close to the Earth. And this article is detailing some of those that they know about. And one of the conclusions of the article is that there's a lot of things out there that we don't even know about. So what the book of Revelation is talking about is not science fiction, but things that even scientists are aware could happen. And in the book of Revelation, it's going to happen. Okay? There's other passages as well in terms of that that fourth trumpet judgment. In virtually every passage of the book of Revelation, we could go back and find, because of time, we're not looking at a lot of Old Testament passages, but John draws a lot of the imagery and a lot of the ideas Given new vision, new revelation, these coordinate and are tied to things that the Old Testament speaks of. In other words, these are not brand new. And for example, just as an example, this fourth trumpet, and I'll call attention to this as we talk about some other things as well. But in terms of darkness in the heavens, Isaiah and Isaiah 13, now in that passage, I think he's dealing with Babylon, which we'll talk about later on here. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Now, these events, we've said, are related to the day of the Lord, this broad concept. I see the day of the Lord as this time frame where God is going to be dealing with those things that bring history to consummation. The day of the Lord, I think, and you just had a whole seminar on that, right? you got to teach me or correct me. <laughs> I see the day of the Lord as kind of a, an all-encompassing time where God is dealing with all of, all of these issues. The majority of the passages relate the day of the Lord to these judgments. There's a few of them that relate the day of the Lord even to the kingdom. So I think it's this kind of composite period where God is bringing all things together. Is that the view that Merriman had pretty much? or Because I don't want to go against what he said for sure. <laughs> but taking all of these passages from the Old Testament and a few in the New Testament seem to indicate that the day of the Lord is... its not. This is one of the examples where the day is not a literal day because of the context of so many passages, but more the occasion of God dealing with last things. So it, it includes a lot of days, if you will. And Isaiah is saying in 13, 9 through 10, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. God is cleansing the land. God is burning out evil. 
And he will exterminate its sinners from it. That's the separating out of evil in order to bring about and to effect the good that he's going to do. Then verse 10, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. That's exactly what the fourth trumpet judgment is all about. The sun will be darkened when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Same thing. Ezekiel. Notice what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. Astrophysical. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens will be darkened over you. John is given more specific revelation concerning that darkness. One of the specific details is that it's going to encompass a third of the earth. And then Ezekiel goes on and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Now this pertains to Israel. Joel 3.15, the sun and the moon will grow dark and the stars will lose their brightness. I think he's talking about the same thing here. Amos 8, 9, and it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I shall make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Now, that's kind of a contradiction in terms, right? That's what it says. Jesus himself, and I think Jesus is either alluding to or maybe even paraphrasing some of these Old Testament passages in Luke 21, the record of Luke of the Olivet Discourse, verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and upon the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. So signs in the sun and in the moon. So John is not just coming up with these things or these are not brand new visions. These are, in some cases, a repetition of what God has already revealed. And in some cases... John is alluding to some of these things. And in some cases, John is just receiving visions that just go along with what God has already revealed in several places in the Old Testament. So those are the first four. Now let's look at verse 13 in chapter 8. And notice that the last three are grouped together using a different imagery. And again, and I looked, that's a deo again, So he's seeing another vision here. And I looked and heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven. Now, mid-heaven is basically the point at which the sun is at its height. In other words, noontime, where the sun would be at noontime. That's mid-heaven. I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with, here's another loud voice, lots of noise in the book of Revelation. Noisy book. In fact, the book is is sensual. (laughs) The book brings all of your senses into play. So when you read the book, just think in terms of what what John is seeing, what John is hearing. Even the smell of the smoke is alluded to. And certainly visual, all the things that John is visualizing. It just kind of bombards our sensual nature here. So he sang with a loud voice. So you could scream this out if you wanted to. I won't do it for the sake of (laughs) blasting the speakers here. But woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. We've got a taste of it already. 
If those were just the only judgments, we could say, whoa, whoa, whoa. But he's using this to introduce the last three trumpet judgments. Because not only are they going to be described as trumpet judgments, but they're also described as woes because they are so horrendous. We've seen, I run out of words trying to describe how awful it is. These are even worse. So in the middle here, well, somewhat towards the end, but the last three, attention is called to them uh, in terms of how awful they will be. And woe to those who dwell on the earth, because that's the context of where these, these are taking place. And by the way, that little phrase there, those who dwell on the earth, I haven't camped on that, but that is a recurring phrase that occurs very, very frequently in the book of Revelation. I haven't counted the number that comes before. I'm sure I have it in my notes here. But that little phrase is almost a technical phrase referring to the unbelievers during this period of time, during the the period of the tribulation. Here's one of the occurrences here. Woe to those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers, because, he tells us the reason, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So these are even worse than the ones we've already looked at. And then in chapter 9, we have the, the fifth trumpet judgment, beginning in verse 1, and the fifth angel sounded three woes. So this is the first woe, and it pertains to locusts. The fifth angel sounded, and I saw, there's that little phrase again, kai uh, edon, over and over and over. Now, in this case, this is probably sequential. In other words, after the fourth trumpet judgment, now he's going to see the content of the fifth trumpet judgment. And now he sees a star falling from heaven, which had fallen to the earth. And if you look at that little phrase, a star from heaven, we just saw the identical phrase in verse 10 of chapter 8. Look at chapter 8, verse 10. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, almost identical. Same word, it's still auster, the the Greek word. So the word is identical. Uh, This one fallen to the earth. This other one fell to the, the earth as well. But notice the last phrase here. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to it, him. Okay, there's your first clue that John is not talking about a literal star here. And if you read through and put together all the little details, you'll find out that he's talking about a personage, not a astrophysical body. So we interpreted literally in chapter 8 because there was no little details like these that we're going to see, and there's some others here. But in verse 1, we have the first hint or the first exegetical detail that indicates that this is not, the word there is aute, and it refers to a personage rather than neuter and it. Okay, And also notice that it says a key of the bottomless pit was given to him. We've seen that little phrase as well. Things given to people, and we've said in those other occasions, these are more little hints that what we have here 
is these things are occurring as a result of a sovereign God who is permitting and even giving over to personages certain things to work out his plan. It just hints at a sovereign God behind all of these. I think it's no accident that we we see it so frequently. I think it's a deliberate attempt by God to communicate to us. And by the way, most of them are, I think, if not all of them, are in the passive, which indicates that it's not people overtly going about doing these things. This is given to them, and they are simply the instruments of what God is doing. This key to the bottomless pit was given to him. This authority, a key in Scripture, oftentimes is an image of authority. In other words, he's the one that can open the door, unlock it, and enter. And without the key, you don't enter. So it's a a visual or an image of authority. So he's given this key, this hymn, whoever that hymn is, to this bottomless pit. And then verse 2, and he opened, he again, uh, referring back to the hymn, which refers back to the star. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So in your mind, think of a great furnace that is either producing whatever, you know, some furnace and you see this huge smokestack and smoke. That's the imagery that he's giving you here. So the smoke is coming out out of this pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. So this is pretty extensive here. Let me give you some uh, passages that will support the figurative use. I'm giving you something of the interpretation there. These locusts are probably demonic spirits. Uh, I'll support that as we go into some of the exegetical details. Verses 9 through 6, I think, describes the destruction of these locusts. This is just more detail. I may even have that on your outline sheet. Detail of my outline or my exegetical outline. First, we have the destroyer, who is this him that is referred to in verse 1, and then the he in verse 2. I think it's a personage. If you do a word study, this is what I was telling you in the last hour, on the word, the Greek word austere, it is used in a literal sense and I gave you the different ways that it could be used. It could refer to a a literal star in another galaxy or in the Milky Way or even beyond that. Or it could refer to a comet. It's a photograph, a NASA photograph of, I think, Halley's Comet. Or it could refer to an asteroid. Or in the first century, they didn't distinguish between stars and planets. That's how that word can be used in a literal sense. That same word can also be used in a non-literal sense. It can refer to false teachers. An example of that is in Jude 13. We won't look up that passage, but you can jot down Jude 13 refers to false teachers as stars, and it uses that word, austere. And in that context, it's clearly false teachers he's talking about. Secondly, the word is used in reference to angels. Even in this book, do you remember one of the very first symbols that we had in chapter 1? Do you remember that symbol? Do we need to backtrack? Yeah. Remember John 
saw these seven stars, and look at verse 20. Thank you, Brad. As for the mystery of the seven stars, the word is aster, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are what? Angels. And in that context, we have an interpretation of a symbol, a non-literal use of austere. If you want another example in chapter chapter 12, notice in verse 4. And his this is Satan here. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 12. And his tail, Satan's tail, swept away a third of the what? Austere or stars stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And in this context, we're going to see that it's referring to fallen angels. So that word can be used in a non-literal sense. If you keep working, you can also see that Israel is referred to in chapter 12, verse 1. And notice what that says. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. So the stars are associated, at least, to the nation of Israel. And they're probably representative of the nation in representative of the twelve tribes. Even Christ himself, in 22.16, what is he called? The bright, what? Morning, and the word austere is in that context. So it can be used in a non-literal sense, and primarily in those non-literal senses, it's used in reference to personages. And here, more than likely, I think we have a reference to Satan himself because of the following description. So let's follow through in our outlines. Does that make sense? And I gave you a couple of clues, and as we as we continue here, that star that is being referred to, he does the thing that a personage does. He has some other names that are associated with a personage. So verses 9 through 6, let's finish those portions. So he opens the bottomless pit, verse 2, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. Sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And verse 3, And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. And power was, there's our little word there, power was given in the passive. Power was given them. This is all part of the permissive will. One thing that Job chapters 1 and 2 tell us is that Satan cannot do anything apart from God's permissive will. And God gives permission to Satan to torment Job. Similarly here, God is giving permission to these locusts, whatever they are, kind of gave away what they are, or at least what they seem to be, was given to them. And this power is as the scorpions, so it's like a stinging infliction that they're able to inflict upon people. As scorpions of the earth have power. And then verse 4, And they were told that they should not hurt the grass. In other words, these are not, there's there's another little hint, these are, these are not ordinary locusts. Because locusts, what do they do? They eat vegetation. But these were told, so communication, that's another little hint there. Is a locust going to obey you if you communicate to it? <laughs> well, you're not going to communicate to it, but if you speak to it, Another little bit of information here to give us an idea of what's going on. 
They were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So who are the ones that have the seal of God on foreheads? 144,000. You weren't even here, and you know it. Good. They are protected from the judgments, and here's just one of the examples of what they're protected from. They're protected from the scorpion-like locusts, locust-like creatures. So here is kind of the boundaries of what they can do. And there are certain men that are excluded from the judgment, but the others are susceptible to uh, inflicting their their damage. And they were not permitted to kill anyone. Uh, so again, notice the not permitted uh, again, another little note. We have this over and over and over. There's forces and primarily God's power behind all of these judgments. We saw that this consistently in the seal judgments. Remember, these were given to inflict those judgments. Similar here, not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And I've already said that I take all of the uh, time frames, all of the numbers of the book of Revelation in in a literal sense. Uh, I don't see anything, particularly this one, there's nothing here to indicate This is symbolic. Most commentaries, they play with the numbers. I'm not sure why, but I guess to give justification with some of the harder numbers to be able to spiritualize them. So I take this five-month period of time. This hints that even, even though these are horrendous, there's still boundaries to them because God is still working out a plan. And we don't know what that plan and why five months are important. I just believe it because it's there. Okay. To torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion. That was already given to us in verse 3. When it stings a man. So some very painful infliction, some health problem of some sort that these creatures inflict. So severe that in verse 6, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. It'll be so painful that people would rather die than to continue in this pain. It's hard to know how, in other words, you would think that people could commit suicide at any point. Just shoot your brains out like people do. But for some reason, God does not permit that. They, they have to go through the torment, which it's part of the process. So they will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die. In other words, this is their desire. They will want to escape. And and when you're in pain, you want to get out of it. And you see no solution. And the only solution is death, but you can't do it for whatever reason. They will long to die and death flees from them. So there may be some attempts at suicide that fail. God prevents it. And then we have the appearance Let's see, that's verse 6. So we have the destroyer in verse 1. They seem to be demons, verse 2, primarily because they come out of this bottomless pit. The word there is actually abyss. I think some of the translations translate it that way. And abyss is just a transliteration from the Greek word abusos, because it sounds exactly like an abyss. Uh, Some places it's translated bottomless pit, which indicates that it is like a pit that has no ending. And it may be the same type of 
or same place of confinement that Peter refers to where demons are confined in Tartarus could be the same or similar or related. So I take them to be demonic spirits. It appears that during this period of time, during this seven years, demons are more prevalent, more destructive, more active than in any other period of history. The Gospels narrate a lot of demonic activity, and Jesus even cast out lots of demons, and the the apostles did as well. But the period during this time, during the tribulation, is going to be even far more horrendous than any of those demons that are recorded in, in the Gospels. We're going to see in chapter 12, we're going to get in another interlude, it's going to give an explanation why this is taking place. I think the explanation, in fact, we read it a while ago, the explanation is a third of the, the stars that fell, these are demonic spirits, they're cast to earth. And I think in terms of time, during the tribulation period, Satan and demonic spirits will no longer have access to to the heavens. Now, if you remember in the book of Job, Satan goes before God and asks to torment Job. And there's lots of other passages that speak of demonic spirits having seeming access to heaven, the heavens. And I don't think it's just the atmosphere. So they seem to have activity outside of the earth. And during this seven-year period, chapter 12 seems to indicate that they are now cast to the earth and confined there. And this is their only area of activity. And they're confined to that. So you see not only a prevalence of them, but you also see uh, almost an intensification of their anger. So there's lots of demonic activity during this period of time. That's the thrust of this judgment is demonic infliction that's like a sting of a scorpion that you can't get rid of it and you can't even die. So I I take these as demonic spirits. And here it appears that some that were confined, so even more than probably those that are cast to earth, are involved. So you have just all kinds of demons, probably some of the most severe of demons that have been confined and perhaps are confined. Doesn't look like a scorpion to me, <clears throat> or a locust. 3 through 6 describes the destruction. And now beginning in verse 7, we're going to look at a description of them. And the appearance of the locust was like horses. So there's another image which indicates these are not literal scorpions, not literal locusts. They look like horses. And not ordinary horses, but war horses. Horses prepared for battle and on their heads, as it were, crowns. Crowns throughout the book of Revelation, also the book of Daniel. Crowns are authority. So they have authority, uh, rulership. Crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of of men. Uh, So again, these are... There's creatures that have a lot of resemblances to other things. They're like scorpions, they're like locusts, they're like horses, they appear like men. And they're probably very grotesque. That's why I use that image right there. And it talks about their hair. So this apparently 
maybe not so much for us, but for those that read the book of Revelation during this period of time, this is going to be probably helpful to them. And they had hair like the hair of women. So there's another comparison here. And I think what is in view there, uh, there, there might be a certain beauty to them. I, I think the allusion usually to women and hair is association with beauty. There's an attractiveness to them. And we do know that Satan operates like an angel of light. And for those that are deceived and for those that don't know the Lord and, and can't distinguish good and evil, Satan always appears attractive. So that might be in view there. Hair like the hair of a woman. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. There's another image. So these are not just literal locusts. And these are just perhaps during that period of time, demons manifesting themselves in these creaturely manifestations that are probably unique and different Externally, perhaps even a, there's an attractiveness to them, but their destruction is certainly certainly not anything to look forward to. A lot of detail here. It's it's a little surprising because we won't see these as believers in the body of Christ. Verse verse nine, and they had breastplates. Another piece of imagery, like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like. So they have wings. And it's like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. And back to the scorpions, they have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. Another reason why to take it literally, because it comes back to the reference of the five months again. So it emphasizes it two times there. Again, we have limits to this judgment. And then verse 11, they have as king over them the angel of the abyss. What is that referring to? That goes back to verses 1 and 2. The angel of the abyss is probably the one that has the key of the bottomless pit, the hymn, and the one that it says he opened, he had the authority to open it. Uh, he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up, and then we have all that follows here. Now we have a description of that personage. So for all of these little exegetical pieces, I, I believe that this is Satan himself. And more conclusively, because of the names, they have a king over them. In other words, a personage with a, with ruling authority. And he's identified as the angel of the abyss, tying it to verses 1 and 2. And now we have these names. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destroyer. This is a name of Satan. He's a destroyer by nature. That's his name. Names in Scripture are not tags. They're not, what do we call them? I'm searching for a word here. They're not just nice sounding. You know, we name our children. I like the sound of that name. In Scripture, consistently, all the way into the book of Genesis, names represent the person. When we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just a magical thing that we add to the prayer. We pray in Jesus' name because it represents Him. We're praying in representative of all that He is and in accordance with who He is. And here's another example of a name telling us the embodiment of the characteristics of this person is 
Abaddon is destroyer. That's the essence of who Satan is. He's a destroyer of what God uh, loves and desires. He's a destroyer of the creation. He's a destroyer of mankind. He's a destroyer of souls. He's attempting to destroy the plan of God. He attempted to destroy Jesus Christ. He attempted to destroy the whole line of Christ. That's the embodiment of all that he is. And his main tool is deception. So we have an identifier of Satan here. Uh, Not only in Hebrew, Abaddon, but in Greek, his name is Apollyon. And it's the same. So it's emphasized Greek and Hebrew here. And the word means the same thing, destroyer. That's the essence of who he is. So verse 11 seems to kind of give the conclusive pieces of evidence that who we have in view in in this judgment is a direct attack of Satan and his demons upon mankind. And notice that we've already emphasized that he is given, I don't want to use the word opportunity, but the... Uh, the ability to do these things or given permission to do these things. And this fulfills part of what God is doing. This is one of the judgments, one of the trumpet judgments. To inflict this pain, it's not purposeless. Do you remember I mentioned the the, the, the two great purposes of the, the tribulation period? Do you remember two of them? I had to repeat them often. Number one was what? Yeah, to bring Israel to salvation. Okay, the second one, bring judgment upon the the nations or the earth, the nations and the earth. The judgments are designed to serve the first purpose. In other words, they're designed to awaken not just Israel, primarily Israel, but not just Israel, awaken people. You know, something different is happening here. These are not just catastrophes. These are not just geophysical events. Something is going on beyond that that we need to pay attention to. I think as a result of these judgments, God is going to bring people to Himself. People will be sensitized to spiritual things. And when you're suffering, you know, you cry out to God, even if, even unbelievers do that. They may not know Him and they may not, you know, have a relationship. They cry out to God. And I think part of the design of what's happening is to awaken people to the end is coming, basically. And people will begin to realize that. We already saw on the seal judgments, people knew who was bringing these judgments. Remember? Turn back to chapter 6. Notice what it says. Now, these are those that don't respond, which speaks to man's depravity. But look at the end of the chapter. Verse 16, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. They know where these judgments are coming from. They're coming from the throne of God. They know this. And from the wrath of the Lamb, they know that these are judgments that Jesus Christ is inflicting on the earth. They're from him. For the great day of his wrath has come. They know that this is the occasion of judgment. And they're even aware who is able to stand. They're aware that no one can thwart what God is doing. So the depravity of man, those that never believe, continues to turn away. But those, I believe that, I like to use the word elect, but 
I won't stress that point. <laughs> I think those that God has in fact chosen do in fact, God uses these to awaken them. Okay? So that's part of what's going on here. So that concludes that judgment. We have comparison 7 through 9, an artist's conception that tries to include some of these elements here. By the way, this chapter has lots of comparisons that uh, we went over already. The Greek word hos occurs ten times in this chapter. Uh, it's usually translated like or as in this chapter. In fact, somewhere here I could give you the specific verses, but that's not important. Another comparative word, homoias, four times in this chapter. Lots of comparisons. There's still some more later on, but these Greek words to compare one thing to another, very common in this chapter. In fact, most comparisons in the whole book. And one occurrence of another word that can translate as or like. And then verses 10 and 11 are their powers. We looked at that. So that's the fifth trumpet judgment. But there's a sixth. Mm -hmm. Let's see, I saw an angel. Let's look at it. I saw an angel who gave him the key, and I saw an angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. It's not stated, but I think the clear implication is God himself. Just in coordination with all the other passages that seem to indicate the sovereignty of God. No, I, we don't have a chronology on when they are kicked out. I think they are confined to earth during that whole seven-year period of time. Yeah. I don't think we have a specific date for that. Yes. Well, these may be additional to the, the angels that are referred to in chapter 12. These seem to be the ones that are confined in this abyss. Well, these are confined angels that are let loose because they're coming out of the abyss. Okay? Well, you're saying the, the ones from that viewpoint? Possibly. If you hold to that viewpoint of demonic spirits intermarrying with the daughters of men, yeah, these would be this, those angels, more than likely, in that viewpoint. But before we get to the sixth trumpet, notice what it says in verse 12. The first woe, remember we were introduced, three woes, woe, 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 verse 13, chapter 8. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. So if that's not horrendous enough, we're going to have two more. And verse 13, we have the next one. So let me use our three woes. So not only is it a trumpet judgment, but it's a what we could describe as a woe judgment. First one, demonic spirits. The second one is an eastern army. And let's look at it. And the sixth angel sounded. So we have another trumpet sounding. doesn't use the word trumpet here. In fact, it doesn't use it except at the very beginning. But the writer understands that you know what he's talking about. Sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. That ties back to what we looked at at the beginning of verse 8. Remember that imagery that we developed there, first five verses there. 
And now we have this voice from that golden altar, which is before God. So this is that heavenly altar that uh, we said the context of that passage referred to the heavenly altar, not an earthly one. One saying to the sixth angel. So now we have communication. Here is a voice. Now, who is the voice? You could debate that. Some believe it's another angel. An angel is not mentioned. Some believe that it could be God himself. Some believe it could be Christ. It's not real clear. It is coming from the throne, so if it is if it is an angel, it's a communication that God mediates through angels. Or it could be a voice of God himself. Or it could be a voice of Christ. The main thing, though, it's it's coming from the four corners of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel, and remember, God's behind all of this. God is orchestrating these events. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, so this is part of the trumpet judgments, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Four angels. (laughs) I'll remind you again, when we get to chapter 14, because there's lots of angels in chapter 14 as well, I'm going to give you a, a little quick overview of all of the things that God uses angels to do. There's a, there's a list of about six different things that he does. Here's one of the things. One of the major things is that uh, he uses angels. He uses angels to actually inflict judgment. And I think we've seen examples of that already. But notice here we have angels release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. These are angels that seem to be instruments that God uses to orchestrate natural events. We're going to see that there's an angel of fire, there's an angel of wind, and different kinds of angels that seem to have authority to orchestrate events in terms of weather or things that take place related to some of these things on earth. Here are four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. I don't see anything in the context to take that to represent Jerusalem or Rome or all of the suggestions that people utilize. So I think this is near Babylon on the Euphrates, which is an important geographical location in Old Testament time. Euphrates was the boundary that God set for the nation of Israel. So... Euphrates is going to be mentioned a few more times in the book of Revelation. Here we have four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. They're kind of waiting there. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year. God has a time frame. God has a specific schedule. Things are going to unfold in his time frame. These are not random events. These are not consequences of other events. This is not cause and effect. Well, it's cause and effect in that God is the one that's orchestrating, making the causes. There's a particular time frame. Now, we don't know all the details of this time frame. God has revealed, for example, that this time frame is a seven-year period that's broken down into two, three-and-a-half-year periods. But there is a schedule here, and these four angels who had been prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. Unimaginable. It's hard to conceive. 
one more comment on the hour, day, and month, and year. I've been stressing, and I think the book of Revelation stresses over and over and over lots of themes. One of the main themes that it stresses is God is sovereign over all these things. He is orchestrating these things. Let's look at this judgment. Uh, They were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. Yeah, let's read on. And the number... The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Is there anything in there that seems to indicate that this is not 200 million? Now, the little phrase is sometimes used in a non-literal sense, but the context usually dictates that. I think here it's another literal number. Commentators in the past have had a problem with the number 200 million because it's so huge. The population of the whole world was didn't reach 200 million. I don't remember the specific dates, but closer to our time than biblical times for the whole world was this big. So commentators have had a hard time envisioning an army of 200 million. So the tendency amongst commentators is to spiritualize either the number or spiritualize the armies or both. I take both of them literally. I think there's going to be a literal army on the face of the earth that numbers 200 million during this period of time. And keep in mind, this is after some of the destruction and some of the deaths of people that would not exclude members of the military. So there could have been the possibility of an army even larger. One of the six Seal judgments, remember we had a destruction of what? Do you remember? Of mankind. This one is a third, and that one was what? A quarter of mankind. So this is a horrendous number, or a huge number. This is how I saw in the vision, so he's going to describe some more. Here's an application that you can draw from some of these passages, and particularly this one here. Our culture in drawing this application to a a church audience, might stress some of these elements that describe our culture. And a lot of the elements in our culture today, you see magnified during this period of time. Today, there is overt Satan worship. In Albuquerque, where I come from, uh, there's a church of Satan, and they overtly worship Satan. Some crimes... I used to know, well, I still do. I was involved with a church that had a couple of policemen. Uh, they were believers, and they are, they've conveyed to me that they, they believe that they have offered children as sacrifices in that church. So there's overt Satan worship with child sacrifice today. And I don't think Albuquerque is unique. I'm sure in other, probably not Tullahoma, it's probably too small, but... I bet in Nashville you can find a church of Satan. What did we just have just a weekend ago? Mass murder. Wasn't the first one. Columbine. There's been others. What was the name of that military guy in, uh, what was it, Virginia Tech? No, that's that's another one. Virginia, the what? Fort Hood. That's the one I was thinking about. Virginia Tech. So we, we've had several of these already in America. There's a drug culture. In fact, there's the word for drugs here. Pharmakia, the, the Greek word, it's translated uh, sorcery, and there's a tie between sorcery and the drug culture. Uh, these are things in our culture. 
sexual immorality. We're going to see a lot of that, not only in this passage, but later on. Political corruption, do we need to talk about it? But these are elements in our culture. I'm not saying that it's describing our culture. What I'm saying is if you can imagine these things on a small scale in our culture and the damage that it does to people that are involved in these things, people that are involved in Satan worship are just destroying themselves. A lot of them are from the drug culture and their minds are pretty well destroyed. And obviously the danger of the drug culture itself and the damage it's done. Magnify that and think these are things that are going to just be everywhere and prevalent because of what's going on here. And you can envision how a third of mankind will be destroyed as a result of an army. Okay, one more. Terrorists. There are terrorists that live among us. They just haven't had opportunities to be able to inflict their terrorism. That's our culture. Sixth trumpet judgment. We have the dispatching of an army, verses 13 through 16. I'm just adding to the exegetical outline. We have the location, the Euphrates. And if you're familiar, this is kind of a a modern-day map superimposed. And I've added the uh, in red the uh, biblical names. This is Iraq. Now, I put this together when we were in the Iraq War. I, I was teaching this passage to give you perspective. This is going to be a prominent location, Babylon. And when we get to the passage that pertain to Babylon, I think there's going to be a capital there that's basically going to be a home base for Antichrist. He may have three locations where he will operate out of, but most certainly Babylon. And most certainly Jerusalem. I think at least Babylon, literal Babylon and Jerusalem, he's going to operate out of going all the way back to Abraham. Uh, this is an important area. This area throughout Bible history has been at the center of what God's doing and dealings with mankind. So Ur is about there on the Euphrates and extends come headwaters out of Turkey. This is a major river, by the way. So what we have described here, uh, we're going to see later on the drying up of the Euphrates, uh, Damascus, Jerusalem, Nineveh. That area is going to come back into prominence. There's the Euphrates. And this is how I saw, there's the word Adon, the Greek word, or Adeo. I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates. Again, we're going to go... Remember I said this is a chapter that has all of these words for likeness. The color of fire. In other words, not real fire. It's like fire. And of hyacinth. And of brimstone. This is a picture of war. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of a lion. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. This is judgment. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. So again, the emphasis two times. So it's hard to spiritualize it. Verse 15, it was introduced so that they might kill a third of mankind. And here in verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeds out of their mouth. 
I think we have a similar description here in terms of the reality behind the imagery. I think what we have is demonic activity again. I think in the fifth trumpet judgment, we have overt demonic infliction of wounds and pain. And in the the sixth trumpet judgment, I think we have an army, a literal army that is demon-possessed, a demon-possessed army. So these horses are strange-looking, killing a third of mankind. And notice verse 19, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. So they have unusual body features, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. Okay, So that's their description, they're demonic. And they inflict this destruction, which is described in 18 and 19, third of mankind is destroyed. I don't know how other to take it than to view them as as a demonic, demon-possessed army here of 200 million. The reason I use this imagery is on different occasions. In fact, I think one of the first publicized claim of Red China was in the 1960s, and I've got an old article that makes a claim that they could uh, rise up an army of 200 million. This was back in 19 mid-1960s, before some of you were born. And I've seen some other published military information that indicates that they could do that today, obviously, and probably more, even more. And like I said, uh, they could gather together a larger army, and probably some of that army is destroyed on some of these other judgments that we've looked at. So by the time these destructions have had their effect, you still have left over an army of 200 million that are going to inflict pain in this sixth trumpet. Just to kind of give you a feel for what that's like, I think we did this when we were in chapter 6, verse 8. We talked about a fourth of mankind. If it were to happen today, there are 7 billion people on the face of the earth. The proportions work out the same. I'll give you the proportion in a moment here. So imagine a fourth of the population, that's 1.75 billion. That's all of China and lots of other countries as well. It's hard to imagine that. Try to bring it home, but our mind, it's hard to conceive of a billion anyway, much less to think in terms of that many people dying. But to bring it home, just just think, uh, what's the population of Tullahoma? What, 12,000 or so or 18,000? Okay, well... Imagine 5,000 people in Tullahoma dying. I mean, where do you put them? I mean, how do you bury them? And, you know, all, you know, think of that. I mean, that's what's going to go on. And this is just the seal judgment. And now in verse 18, it talks about a third. So if you subtract the 1.75, you have 5.25 left, and you take a third of that, and you have another 1.75. So whatever number you have here, you're going to end up with a total that ends up destroying half the population of the world. So during this period of time, 9,000 people in Tullahoma are going to die in two judgments. And there's going to be other judgments that come along as well. Well, maybe, yeah, eight, eight, minus eight or, eight or nine people. Yeah, minus eight or nine. But what's eight or nine in 9,000? <laughs> That's questionable. 
I don't know. It, it, this is one of the reasons why people and commentators have such a hard time with the book of Revelation. I think the numbers and everything are clear. In fact, the emphasis is it gives us numbers and it gives us detail and everything in the text is driving us to say what I'm talking about is what exactly what I mean. This is literal. These are real stars that fall from heaven. These are real armies that come. They're grotesque and they're different, but the difference indicates that they're demonic there's specific numbers, and the numbers are emphasized. In this case, it's given two times. So commentators have a real hard time, because when you think about this, you know, what what could cause a half of the population to die? And most of the, a lot of the commentators, this was before nuclear weapons. Today, we can have a picture, you know, where you could set off a few few nuclear weapons, and you could generate these numbers. But before that, how do you generate that number of people dying? with an army, with uh, bows and arrows, <laughs> four guns, you know. So commentators historically have had a hard time. And like I said at the very beginning, one of the quotes that I said, uh, what, I can't remember the quote, but something along the lines, the book of Revelation is not hard to understand. In other words, pretty clear here. It's hard to believe. It's hard to conceive of these things. So commentators have a tendency to spiritualize the book of Revelation, unfortunately. But if we take them literally, uh, I think we as conservatives need to think in terms of why does this have to happen? And we realize that what God is doing is He's bringing an end to evil. God is bringing an end to evil. And in bringing an end to evil, He must separate evil from that that He wants to preserve. And in order to separate out, it's a painful thing. It's not just pulling one thing out and putting something away. It requires that God bring judgment. This is the nature of what God is doing in terms of righteous dealing with mankind. So that's what we have here. Half the world population. And you would expect everybody, oh man, this is so horrendous. The only solution is Jesus Christ. Is that what we have in 20 and 21? The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, and we've seen seal judgments, which could be included here, and now trumpet judgments, six of them. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. And there's another little exegetical detail that kind of gives you a clue that what he has been describing here in the fifth trumpet are overt demon activity and in the sixth trumpet judgment, a demon-possessed army. A lot of demonic activity. They did not repent so as to not worship demons. And that's the hook. In other words, a person that's into these things is trapped. Now, I think God can save people that are into demonic activity, but the depravity of man is such that he cannot escape those things on his own. It takes God breaking those bonds. So they do not repent of the works of their hands so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold. So we have an explanation of what God is doing here. This is, this is righteous judgment. We're going to see this over and over. And the idols of gold and of silver and of brass more detail of stone, of woods, 
which can neither, uh, here's an interesting note, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Where does that go to? Where have you seen that in Old Testament? Jeremiah and other prophets contrasting the one true God with dead idols. This is another uh, allusion to the Old Testament. And that's what they are. Idols are dead. They can't see nor hear nor walk. And demons are linked to these dead images that people worship and bow down to. Verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders. In other words, not only their worship, the focus of what they deem most important, but uh, their lifestyles. They did not repent of their murders nor their sorceries. There's that word pharmakia, which is related to drugs nor of their sorceries, which I think has a tie to demonic activity, nor their immorality, nor of their thefts. Just a list of the common sins of mankind. So they prefer, and there's going to be a lot of motivation to steal. Food is going to be scarce. There's going to be a motivation to seek answers, sorcery. In other words, how do I find an answer to what's going on. All I have is just feeding my sensuality, so lots of immorality. I'd rather have that than trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The depravity of man's heart versus another one. We saw the same thing after the first six seal judgments. You have the same thing after the first trumpet judgments. And depravity is a, a reality of who, who we are as, as people. And I believe it's only the power of God that reverses that. And beginning in chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 14, we have an interlude, a long interlude. And that's what we will deal with tomorrow. We'll take a look at this interlude. So we've had things on earth, and those are judgments. Now we're going to be taking kind of aside and given some other little visions that John sees that go back. And some of them uh, in the chronology, we'll have to put them back probably during the seal judgments and during the trumpet judgments. We're not. Some of them are not specific. Some of them will have a few notes to them. Okay? Any questions? Or... Let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll, I'll open it up. Father, we do praise you because you are righteous were frightened and awed at what takes place in the book of Revelation. But we know that there's that little phrase, these things must take place. And they also give us insight into why they must take place. We know that you are bringing an end to evil. And in bringing the end to evil, you have to do these things. So even though they are painful for people uh, that we, we probably know that will go through these things, and our hearts break, and we, we don't want to see people have to endure these things, but they must take place. So we praise you that uh, in doing these things, you will bring an end to not only history, but you will bring all of the elements of the plan that you have to its ultimate consummation. So we praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.